Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. Social distancing measures to contain coronavirus have crashed economies around the world, massively reducing government tax revenues. At the same time, governments have brought in massive economic rescue packages to support workers and businesses. An obvious question is, where is the money coming from to pay for these rescue packages and to make up for lost tax revenue? To discuss this question and to talk about uh, the economic impact of coronavirus, I've brought back onto the program my good friend and former Treasury colleague, Joe Brannigan, Director of Tulipwood Economics. Joe, thanks for coming back onto the program. My pleasure, Gene. Good to be with you. Excellent, Joe. Now, Joe, I've been chatting with the local ABC radio about this issue of uh, where the government in Australia here, so we're recording this in Brisbane, Australia. Thankfully, we've it looks like we've flattened the curve here in Australia, which is great news, uh, but obviously it seems to be still early days and uh, the social distancing measures the government has introduced has caused uh, massive economic dislocation and the government here is now having to borrow an additional... billion every week for the foreseeable future. So that's up from around $1.2 to $1.6 billion. So this is in Australia. If if you're in the US, you probably have to 10x those numbers. But there's there's going to be a lot more debt in Australia. And I thought, Joe, what would be good is if we can have a discussion about debt and, you know, how governments borrow and, uh, you know, what that means for the long term. So, uh, and, and after that, we can have a chat about the, the economic impact because I know you've been doing some great research on the coronavirus, haven't you? You've, you're working with some colleagues and, there's, I mean, this is all sort of hush-hush stuff, I think, but uh, it's fair to say <laughs> you're, doing some, you're doing some research at the moment on these issues, aren't you? Well, yeah, thanks, Gene. It, it's true I am on the job uh, um, in relation to the public policy um, choices around the coronavirus, as I'm sure many economists around the country are for, for various um, private sector and, and government clients. And I think uh, it's timely to have this discussion about where the government gets this debt to try and uh, ameliorate or cushion the economic impacts of coronavirus because uh as you know, the discussion in Australian public policy for many decades now, one of the cornerstones of what we would regard as good public policy um, is having budgets balanced uh, and keeping debt to manageable levels. Indeed, um, governments have won elections on promising to be prudent fiscal managers. Uh, and, and And here we are after... Um, you know, 10 years after the GFC, um, 10 years after uh, we had what um, at the time seemed like uh, an extraordinary deterioration in our fiscal position where we went from essentially a net asset position across the Australian Federation uh, to a position where we were about the fiscal balance was about minus 7% of GDP. And we spent the last decade uh, working our way back uh, to try and get that in balance. And here we are. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, uh, uh, know, two months, uh, three months into this new world where um, those targets have just completely gone out the window and and obviously um, for good reason. But I think it's important to stop and think, um, where this money comes from and uh, how how it's paid back and what are the long-term uh, economic impacts um, of the decisions that, you know, we're rapidly making in real time uh, in these, you know, early months of 2020. Absolutely. So the IMF has come out and said that this is going to be the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. So... We, we can understand that this is going to have a massive impact on government budgets and 
that governments will want to undertake rescue measures of, to uh, to help uh, workers and businesses, and that's why they're going to have to be borrowing a lot more money. So I thought it'd be good to to chat about this because there's a lot of well, people just don't know. I mean, they they really don't know how governments get the money. I mean, they usually get they get the bulk of their money to finance their but they're spending by taxes and charges on the population. But then when there's a gap, when they don't have enough revenue for their spending, there's a, there's a deficit and they need to get the money from somewhere. So when I was in the Treasury, so we both worked in the Treasury together. We are in macro policy division. I later ended up in the budget policy division. And my job there when I was in budget policy was to look at the cash management and debt management policy of the Australian government. And so what I found fascinating is that this, and it seems obvious, but the Australian government has a bank account. It, had a, it has a bank account or a collection of bank accounts with the Reserve Bank of Australia, with the central bank. So the central bank is the bank of the government and it's also the bank of all of the, the private sector banks. So Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, National Australia Bank here in Australia. In Britain, the central bank is the Bank of England. In the US, it's the Federal Reserve Bank. So the Australian government's got a bank account and it needs to make sure it's got enough money in that bank account to pay its bills as they fall due. So when the Treasury, so the, it's the Treasury that looks after this and the Treasury has an office called the Australian Office of Financial Management. It's part of the Treasury portfolio. So treasuries and finance ministries around the world, they'll have their own debt management office. That's what they call it in the in the jargon. And its job is to make sure that there is enough money in that bank account. And to do that, it will borrow the money by selling bonds. So governments just don't go down, they don't go to a, a private sector bank and take out a loan uh, as a household would go to a bank and take out a loan, if you know what I mean, or a, or a business might go, might go take out a loan for an expansion or to buy some new equipment. They, they borrow money by selling bonds. So these are IOUs where the government is effectively selling a piece of paper, although it's all electronic now, but it'll have... Mm say, $100 on it. And so the government will sell to the market, to the bond market, a bit of paper. This is worth $100. And you give us, you bid for this, you, you pay us some money for this bit of paper that in, you know, ten, in 10 years' time or five years' time or three years' time, whatever the maturity or the term of the bond is, the government will give the $100 back. And in the meantime, between the when the bond's purchased and its maturity, the government will make coupon payments, so regular payments, and that's the and from that coupon payment we can work out the interest rate on the bond. So it could be that well let's let's make it simple and say there's an annual coupon payment of two dollars on a one hundred dollar bond and Which would be two percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Yep. Yep. And so depending on what the, the market wants, what interest rate it's prepared to lend at, mm. that $100 bond, so the face value of the bond's $100, that could be you know, vastly different from $100. Uh, well, maybe not vastly, okay. but it could be different from $100. And uh, what it means is that if, you know, if, the inter- if markets are willing to lend at less than 2%, then... They would uh, they would pay um, much more for that hundred dollar bond than than a hundred dollars, uh, and so what we end up having is that the the price of the bond and the yield on the bond or the interest rate they vary inversely, and so that's often why um, you know bond markets can be confusing. You'll hear that you know there's a, a rally in the bond market, so there's a lot of demand for for bonds, that pushes interest rates down. So the bond prices are high, interest rates are, are low because investors are willing to lend to the government. 
they will they want to buy that paper because there's nothing you know equities why would they invest in equities if the economy is tanking so they're more likely to they 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 want to buy the government paper and so that pushes up bond prices lowers the government's cost of borrowing so they're selling bonds into into the market and uh, yeah that's uh, that's a basic intro so uh, Joe does that make no, sense what I've think- described so far yeah, that's well explained, and and you know I think the bond markets are confusing um, to to uh, you know a lot of people because of that inverse relationship. So when you say the bond market's rallying, that actually means interest rates are falling. And you know, the way I like to think about it is, um, if people are buying bonds, it's increasing the liquidity in the economy, and therefore that's driving down interest rates. So that's another way to to to, to think about it. Um, and you know, I guess I guess the basic point is that um, the treasury needs to be sure that there is a market, and um, the way the way that market's created is that um, governments have uh, the you know they're always good they're good for the money because they have the power of taxation over its citizens. So you know, you you make the point that when the um, the economy is tanking, no one wants to invest. Inequities, and they switch to bonds because they're safe havens, and um, they obviously um, uh, are demonstrating a risk aversion, uh, and they're willing to take uh, a lower return on on um, their financial assets. Yes, that's right. And uh, so, what the government is uh, is doing, what the AOFM is doing, is it's having it's selling these bonds to finance the government's expenditure and it's doing this via an auction process. So this is what we, in Australia, most bonds are sold by, well, most of the Australian government bonds are sold by auction and this is all done electronic. For So at the moment they're running three bond auctions a week so they take about 15 minutes. One might be on Monday, another on Tuesday, another on Thursday and... Yeah, there'll be two billion sold in one, one billion in another, two billion in another. It's open for fifteen minutes, and they get bids from all of the players in the market. And these will be typically banks that are buying the bonds, and uh, they'll be buying them for their clients, or they might be buying them for themselves. And they will bid on the bonds. They'll put a price in. They'll they'll bid a price. Or a, the flip the flip side of that is an interest rate, and yeah. the uh, the government the AOFM will accept the the uh, the highest uh, the highest bids. Now I, I have a question for you, Gene. Yeah. How is the RBA allowed to um, buy these bonds? How how does that work? Well, the RBA uh, it's it's participating in the secondary market largely, so. It uh, the bonds that are being purchased at the moment from the auctions, from what I understand, are mostly being purchased by the private sector, and that's as it should be because there's a concern about if the central bank's buying government bonds, then that is monetizing the deficit. Yeah. Uh, so. And that's basically printing money, is that? Is yes, that yes, yeah, that, that's that? right. So there and, is... And we know that's a bad thing. Yeah, generally, because it's inflationary. Now, the, the Reserve Bank is going to follow in the footsteps of banks such as uh, the European Central Bank, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, I think the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, the US, and it's going to engage in quantitative easing. So to an extent, it will be buying bonds, but... It will largely be doing that in the the secondary market. So after these, so up, so the 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 AOFM will, and debt management officers of different countries, they will sell bonds at auctions, but then these bonds are you know they're owned by the investors, and you know they can then go and sell them on to to other investors who who might want those bonds in the secondary market. And so the RBA will be, I think it's about $90 billion or so. So they will be buying bonds, but it won't be 
in those auctions when they're initially right. sold, it'll be um, in that secondary market. But they are still. The, the, you could argue that it's indirectly monetizing the deficit to an extent. So the goal with quantitative easing is to reduce interest rates by increasing demand for for bonds. So they boost the demand for bonds, which will increase the price. And the idea is to lower the interest rates, particularly on the on the longer term bonds. With the and the idea is that that will reduce borrowing costs for for businesses and hopefully stimulate Stimulated investment. It. So yeah, so the RBA is uh, engaging in quantitative easing. But that's and I, I suppose from the perspective of the private banks, knowing that the RBA is there and ready to purchase these bonds would would give a lot of comfort to the to these banks in 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 buying these bonds, knowing that. Um, uh, you know, obviously the RBA will, will uh, um, bid a higher price to buy the bonds off the banks and so that will help banks' liquidity as well. Oh, absolutely, yep. It's, uh, look, it's an important policy measure that the, that the RBA is undertaking and it will certainly make it easier for the government to, to borrow money without... Uh, adversely impacting on interest rates because i mean one of the things that we know joe as economists is that you know as governments borrow more and more from the market that will have that will put pressure on interest rates to rise because there is a limit to how much paper or, or how many bonds the private sector is willing to purchase and that's why the the debt management office, why the AOFM in Australia is selling the bonds at in regular intervals, so it's uh, it's pacing itself. It it's not trying to sell a hundred billion or two hundred billion dollars worth of bonds in one auction because it knows that right. the market's probably not ready to buy all of that at the same at that time. So it's doing it in in smaller portions. And do we know who buys these bonds? Yes. Australian firms or what? what, what yes, or, uh, to an extent. I mean, we don't – they don't publish who the uh, – you know, exactly who owns them, which, which, uh, which banks or central banks or super funds or managed mm. funds. So – but what we do know is that uh, – 60% of Australian government bonds are owned ultimately by overseas investors. 40% are owned domestically. Of the 40% owned domestically, half are owned by Australian banks. And so that will be, so you know, CBA or Westpac, and they need to hold bonds to meet regulatory requirements. So bonds are, are considered really safe assets. So they're good to have on your balance sheet to meet regulatory requirements. And then right. the other half will be owned by, well, ultimately they'll be owned by people, by Australians, by, uh, you know, we'd, own, we'd have some bonds in our super funds and they'd be sure. in managed funds and, yep. yeah, so they'd be part of people's investment portfolios. Now... Of the foreign, the bonds that are owned by foreigners, you'd have a mixture of pension funds, uh, so super funds, and uh, overseas central banks that will be holding Australian bonds. They all have a mixture of uh, bonds from a variety of different countries, and you know that could be the uh, the Central Bank of China, so the People's Bank, or it could be the U.S. Federal Reserve, European Central Bank, but uh, as far as I know, there's no published register. There's no register of uh, who all of the the owners are of the the debt uh, that we can interrogate. But the AOFM has some really great info on its website saying, you know, who owns the debt. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So, uh, yeah, so that's a really good question you asked there, Joe. Um, just going back to that point about the Reserve Bank and its role. So I thought it'd be yeah. good for us to chat about the difference between quantitative easing and 
monetization. Now, what we've seen is occurring in the UK. The Treasury has directed the Bank of England to finance its spending directly. So there's direct monetization. So essentially what's happening is that, as far as I can tell, is that the the Bank of England will just provide a, an overdraft to the the Treasury so it, can, it doesn't have to worry about whether it's got the cash in its bank account or not. So this is monetization. This is this modern monetary theory. You could sort of rationalise it in terms of that. I don't know if you've come across that that idea, Joe. Have you, you've heard of that concept, the mo- modern monetary theory? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, to be honest, it, it, it sounds... Um it sounds pretty scary. I mean, for for a kind of a traditional economist, uh, but I think that um, I think the issue is um, whether the economy is at full employment or not. So, what's the demand in the economy? And and if you have something like the coronavirus pandemic, which has forced um, you know a, a, a shutdown of thirty percent of the economy, well, that's you know. That's a that's a greater decline in economic activity than what we probably saw in the Great Depression, and so if if the demand in the economy has collapsed by so much, then the downside risks of monetizing uh, the deficit, you know, printing money, um, seem quite low. It's only when uh, the economy is at full employment that when you're pumping money into a fully employed economy that you're just simply driving up prices. And, um, you know, I think as we've discussed in the past, we always need to remember what Milton Friedman said about the long run relationship between the quantity of money and inflation. So, you know, I guess modern monetary theory or whatever you want to call it, maybe gets a leave pass or a hall pass, uh, uh, you know, in, in through the middle of 2020, but uh, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't be recommending it in terms of prudent prudent fiscal and monetary policy in normal times. Is that is that how you see it, James? Oh, I totally agree, and I think the Bank of England, if, I think it was one of the officials from the Bank of England or the Treasury, it's reported in the Financial Times last week. They're saying that this is a temporary measure, so they don't they don't want this to be permanent because then you will get in mm. that Weimar Republic. Venezuela, Zimbabwe-type situation where you just have this runaway hyperinflation. We, we want to avoid that, but, uh, yes, in the short term, you could probably get away with it. Uh, but it's just, it's just fascinating. What it shows is just the huge financing problem they've got in Britain. I mean, they just don't – well, I guess they've got it because they've basically agreed – they've decided to subsidise – all of the uh, well, you know, lots of their uh, their workers, haven't they? There's that really generous wage subsidy, and we've yeah. we've copied them, but I don't think ours is as generous. Or, or no, I think I think that's right, and uh, I think they came out quite early, um, and that started a discussion around the world about about what to do. But I, I think um, they, I think Britain might have been the, one of the the first country to. Um, to guarantee those wage subsidies, and you know, obviously, uh, you, you need money. You need money in your, your your account with your central bank to be able to uh, to realise that. Yes, and uh, because uh, they're they're running out of money, they can't and they can't uh, get it from the bond market quickly enough or on favourable terms. Hmm. I mean, they might be worried that. They could have a bond auction, and they just don't have enough takers. It's uh, and that's bad for confidence. If you have a bond auction and you don't have have it covered, you it's uh, not fully subscribed. That's really bad for market confidence. So they probably want to avoid that. Luckily in Australia, there's a lot of demand for our bonds at the moment, as far as I can tell. Uh, some of the tenders last week, they were or the auctions last week, there were coverage ratios of over four, so for what does that mean? Well, so for about two, if, when they were selling, there was one auction where they were selling two billion dollars worth of bonds, and there were bids of nearly ten billion dollars. So there's plenty of demand right. out there. 
Yeah. Right. So the coverage ratio is the ratio of the total bids to uh, the the value of the bonds being sold or their, their face value. Okay. And I that that um, you know that underlines the importance of uh, a national reputation at times like this. So uh, you know Australia has a good reputation globally. Um, it it's um, you know, compared to some European countries and uh, many countries around the world, its fiscal position uh, is quite strong, even though it loosened through the, the, you know, the 2010s following the response to the GFC. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you know, all that hard work that the Commonwealth Government has done in recent years and some states in um, repairing their balance sheets underpins that good national reputation and that underpins confidence in Australia's um, government and financial system, which uh, gets you that coverage ratio at the end of the day. Absolutely. And, Joe, because of all that good work that you were referring to that Australian governments did in the 90s and 2000s, we're in a pretty enviable, enviable position. So, like, we took on a lot of debt after the GFC but compared with US, compared with UK, mm. Japan, as a fraction of GDP, the debt in Australia is is actually not too bad. Uh, we we need to make sure we manage it, and mm. I mean it's going to be much higher after all of this is over. And uh, uh, well, I, mean, I it, think. Yeah, it it went from. I mean, we were tracking to stabilise at around nineteen or twenty percent net debt to GDP, um, and in the operating um, statement to be in balance and then have slight negative fiscal balances because that accounts for uh, infrastructure investment. But you know, who knows? I mean, that might double. We might end up with um, you know, debt to GDP ratios. You know potentially 30 to 50%. And the one caveat about that, I mean, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem overly high relative to other countries in the rest of the world, but Australia does uh, suffer from um, commodity cycles. Uh, sometimes we benefit and sometimes, um, you know, we suffer. You know, we've recently had the greatest terms of trade boom um, probably in our history where the rest of the world was prepared to pay us a premium for our coal and iron ore and, um, you know, other resources, exports. Um, and, um, you know, that made it very easy to manage our public finances. Uh, but if, if we carry 30 to 50% debt to GDP uh, and we're still, you know, we're still driven in large part by the commodity cycle and global demand for our resources, then that puts us at greater risk than other countries which might have a more diversified economy um, with the same level of debt. So that would be my only caveat about having that kind of increased, um, you know, level of debt to up to now what would be, um, you know, European type, levels. Oh yes, I agree with you. So what it means is that once we're through this, we really need to to manage it. We've got to ensure that we do stabilize it and you know ultimately you know when times are good again, run some surpluses and try and pay some of it down. So this uh this gets to this question of repaying the debt and to what extent, you know, how do we do that and and one thing I should note, and this is a point I made with uh, Steve Austin when I was chatting with him, one of the dirty secrets of public finance is that governments can get away with large amounts of debt for a long time and they can actually get away so long as they can get it at a level where it's is not causing too many problems uh, in terms of the interest payments that they have to make, they can get away with just re regularly refinancing the debt. So when the they have to pay back the bondholders, so they'll just they just borrow new money to pay back 
the existing bondholders. So I might read a passage from the best public finance textbook ever written, in my view, Public Finance and Theory and Practice, 5th edition. So this is from 1989. I don't think anything since then has been as good by Richard Musgrave and uh, Peggy Musgrave. And they note, household debt must be repaid sooner or later because conduct of the household is a finite affair. Public debt need not be repaid since the budget and the economy are a continuing undertaking. When a particular debt issue matures, it is paid off, but the necessary funds are obtained by issuing new obligations. The debt is refunded. So I just thought I'd I'd quote that, Joe, because that could lead us to a pretty blasé attitude about debt, couldn't it? Whereas we both know that there are risks with debt, aren't there? There are indeed, and, 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 you know, when we think about what's happening with this, the increased borrowing um, to cushion the economic blow uh, that we're going through now, um, it does have long-term effects. There potentially could be a lower capital stock um, because of this crowding out of private sector investment because of government borrowing, driving up interest rates. So, you know, the private sector borrows less, invests less, and if we think about... Um, you know, how our living standards rise via productivity. Well, productivity, you know, rises from us, you know, using things and doing things better and using capital better, and that's all driven by investment. So that's one channel in the long run that I'm concerned about. And and the other one is just simply the higher interest payments. I mean, even if you're rolling over debt and you're continually refinancing it, you still have these higher interest payments, and higher interest payments... Um, means future tax increases or less services um, or it means, you know, getting rid of um, important assets that you may not want to get rid of. So um, I think we need to be aware that there are long-run effects in terms of the efficiency of the economy. That's the first thing. And the second thing is there is a ceiling to, to borrowing and you can see that with debt downgrades. So, for example, in Queensland, in, um, I think it was February 2009, there was a credit grant downgrade, so it drove, forced um, Queensland to borrow at higher interest rates. And, and, you know, the end point of that is getting continually uh, downgraded and driving up your, your borrowing costs. So there are, there are ceilings to these debt limits. Um, you know, you don't want the IMF kind of coming in and, and running your country, Um uh, which has happened uh, to some countries. I mean, you know, you've got the European Central Bank and the larger countries coming in and telling Greece what to do. Well, I mean, there's many examples in recent years. So, um, you know, we shouldn't be blasé about it. Uh, there are limits to borrowing. It does have uh, effects on the efficiency of the economy. There will be long-run effects. Um, you know, we are kind of borrowing money off our own future, uh, and these things need to be balanced against the benefits of, of keeping our economy afloat today. Absolutely. Look, I uh, I agree with you, and the point you made about the importance of commodities in the Australian economy, if you look at some of our indicators, you'd think Australia was an emerging economy. Uh, you look at our well, historically, we've had a large current account deficit. That's been that's improved in recent years, so it's been less of a concern because of strong mining exports, but that has been a concern in, in the past. We're lucky we can borrow in Australian dollars. We haven't had that problem, but look, yeah, I think things could... There's certainly the risk that the world could turn on Australia in the future if we do accumulate too much debt. So I think that's a that's a very good very good point indeed. And the, the other thing I think, Gino, is is just to um, also um, it's important to manage your debt from from the from from the micro level as well because it forces you to prioritise investments. So. If you think about um, the debate we have around fiscal policy in recent years, one of the benefits of that debate 
is it's forcing us to pick the best infrastructure projects rather than do all of them. So it's, you know, without a, without a ceiling on expenditure and capital investment, you can basically do all projects. And we should, and, and then that, that takes away that obligation to consider each project on its merits and to undertake a cost-benefit analysis of each project on its merits. So I think one of the other risks about having this significantly higher level of debt and these significantly higher annual, uh, potentially, you know, very large deficits for, you know, pro- probably 2019-20 and then 2020-21 and then, you know, potentially ongoing if we can't unwind all of these measures, like some of these measures may end up permanent, then it just takes that... Um, that pressure of governments to make good decisions. So I think this increase in debt will have profound um, public policy impacts for many years. People may rely on governments more. You know, if there's a permanent expansion of the government sector and a shrinking of the private sector, um, you know, as I said, it will take time for these, um, these measures to unwind because there'll be pressure from interest groups uh, to keep some of these measures and to the extent that these measures are kept beyond their use-by date uh, because of these pressure groups, that puts pressure on the budget. Um, so, you know, I think that there's, there are many things to consider here um, and, you know, the longer this goes on, the, the riskier it is, I think, um, for, for the national economy and our, you know, and our fiscal position. Absolutely. We might return to that burden of debt in a future episode because there are a lot of issues to explore there. I think we've given a a good introduction there, Joe, and that was a good point you made about the micro considerations uh, that, yes, if, you, if you're not worried about debt, then you could invest in all sorts of white elephants. So really good point. Just before we go, Joe, would you be able to give us a, an overview of your current thinking about coronavirus and how we've responded to it and whether that's that passes that uh, that cost-benefit analysis test. I know you've been doing some thinking on that. So would you be happy to share some of your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's a really, really difficult question and, and it comes down essentially to how you value human life and uh, that's almost an impossible question to answer. Um, The literature is quite varied on um, how you do this. We have on the one hand, um, uh, you know, government health departments um, when they assess um, new pharmaceutical drugs or uh, new procedures, uh, they're always implicitly or even explicitly valuing uh, human life. and those valuations um, are, are relatively low. They might be in the tens of thousands of dollars or a hundred hundred thousand uh, dollars. Then you then you've you know you can value a life by uh, foregone earnings, but but that you know seems to have ethical issues. It doesn't seem fair that uh, you, you would therefore value someone at the peak of their earnings. Uh, more than a retired person who may have made an equivalent contribution to the economy. Um, so it, it's a very difficult issue, uh, but the, you know there's been a lot of work done, and uh, I know that one of the leading um, academics in this area um, that uh, uses a whole lot of different ways to try and understand. Um, how and whether we can put a monetary value on human life seems to seems to have a figure in mind of around uh, $10 million or $12 million, a very, a very high figure. Um, now, if you, if you use a figure like that um, and if you, if you consider the current estimates of the economic loss and if, and if we think of all this in monthly terms um, it's a it's a close run thing so in other words the 
you know, the, the loss to GDP seems to be the estimates are around $50 billion uh, a month. Some are, some are 40, some are, some are higher. Um, you know, we're basically looking at about a 10 to 20% reduction uh, in GDP in calendar year 2020. That's the, that's the cost. The benefit is the avoided debts. Now here it's very difficult to, to estimate the counterfactual as well. I mean, it depends what you consider to be your base case. So from, from now, where we've almost eliminated uh, the spread of the virus, I mean, we've certainly, you know, almost stamped it out. If, if we lifted all the measures, would we return? I mean, would we have those 120,000, 170,000 deaths in Australia? That seems quite hard to, to accept given that we've got, you know, uh, tracking and tracing and quarantining procedures in place. We've expanded the capacity of our ICUs from, you know, 2,200, 2,400 to potentially over 5,000. So, you know, if, 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 if you were to say, well, the, you know, the lives, the, the avoided deaths are in the, you know, over 100,000 and you value human life at a very high number, then the answer would be maintain these restrictions. But if you think about it, that's no longer, that January 24, before we had our first case, is no longer really the business as usual. The business as usual is the here and now. What the situation we're in now. So it's important to try and think, well, from now, what what would happen if we loosen the measures? So what would be the gain in GDP and the increase in deaths? And what would happen if we tighten the measures? What would be the loss in GDP from this point and the lives saved? And, and I think, you know, that so the, I'm just kind of outlining without getting into what the answers are because the answers really come down to how you value um, lives and what your perspective is on what the business as usual kind of case should be. But the longer this goes on, I think the more um, realistic it is to just say, well, this is the situation we are in now. What would happen if we were to have less interventions but we've got all those measures in place now. The health system is much more ready for this than it was uh, in late January. Would we have that wave of, um, you know, hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and, and deaths? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we would. I, I think we would. We, we could probably, um, you know, start to slightly relax some of those uh, measures and not see a significant increase in the number of in the number of cases going into ICU. Mm. So the critics would say that it's ghoulish to try and put a number, a dollar value on human life, but economists would counter or they would respond by saying that if you don't do it explicitly, you're doing it implicitly because the politicians, they'll be looking at, when they're looking at relaxing the social distancing measures, they'll be looking at, well, what possible impact could that have on human life? What economic benefit would come from relaxing those social distancing measures? And so implicitly they are making a judgment about the value of human life. Is that fair to say, Joe, that they'd be doing this implicitly and you're just trying to do it explicitly? I mean... It- I think that's right. We, we do it all the time. There, there was an interesting opinion piece, I think, by the former chief economist uh, at the... Um, I think the, at the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, if I have that right. But, he, but in any case, he made the point that uh, a very high percentage, it might have been 68% of um, applications for new drugs are rejected for cancer. Cancer-treating drugs are rejected on cost grounds. Um, he was making the point, you know, it goes back to that budget constraint. You know, off a, off, a, off a given budget constraint, we can only do so much. So we, we implicitly value um, 
human life every day. I mean, we could we could invest billions to reduce billions more to reduce traffic accidents. The fact that we don't means we're making trade-offs and choices and implicitly putting a value on human life. And and I agree with you. It sounds ghoulish. It sounds terrible to think in these terms. Um, uh, but and 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 also, there's a complicating issue of we don't know. You know, it it, it 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 might all be well and good to say, well, a human life is worth ten million dollars, and you know, we're only saving, let's say, ten human lives. So you you you're putting a hundred million. That that's just a made up a made up number. But you you know, you're putting a hundred million against billions in lost GDP. But um, the response to that is, yeah, but you know, we don't know which person is at risk, which person is going to die. And I think that's a, um, that, that's a fair enough rebuttal to that kind of, um, you know, statistical application of, of, you know, cost-benefit analysis. If it's a, if it's a society-wide threat, um, you know, then, then, you know, it requires a society-wide response. And I think that comes down to uh, how deadly these viruses are. I mean, you know, polio, you know, if you had an outbreak of polio, which affects young children, if you had an outbreak of um, uh, Ebola, which seemed very deadly, not very infectious, but very deadly, um, you know, you would, you would adjust your response to, um, to, the, to the rate of infection and the, and the mortality rate. So the question around um, coronavirus is just, you know, just how um, how deadly is it? Who, who does it affect? Is it threatening the whole population or just particular groups like the elderly, those with um, significant comorbidities, the vulnerable? Can we somehow isolate them without ruining their living standards? Um, uh, and the rest of us can get on with it? I mean, these are all open questions. I'm not here with any answers at all. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 it relies on value judgments. It relies on the epidemiological um, uh, evidence about how, you know, how risky this is across the whole population. Um, it even relies on what other countries are doing. I mean, it's no point, you know, I mean, we, we can't open up our economy to the rest of the world if the rest of the world aren't aren't in the same position as we are in terms of mitigating the virus. So it's, it's very complicated and, um, you know, the government, I guess, came down with, with the sledgehammer and I guess the advantage of that is that it gives them the option of um, slowly easing up on the restrictions and, and making the interventions um, more targeted as it assesses the, the, the epidemiological data as it comes in and the economic impacts and you know no doubt they're in the best position to do that yeah it's a huge challenge trying to to make decisions in in the current environment given the lack of knowledge on so many critical things and uh yes yes uh, it's hugely challenging i think that was a good overview joe i'm really grateful for that i should ask though with the costs of, so the economic costs, you talk about lost GDP, there are also other costs, aren't there, from if people are unemployed and you know, un, in, in, suffering financial hardship, then that could have mental health implications, could lead to suicide, so there, there are all those costs as well, aren't, aren't there, that we have to factor in. Exactly. You know, there are, there are a huge amount of what we call welfare costs that you would add to that. Um, which would which would put a multiple on the on the on the lost GDP costs and 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 I, I think the the other point to make is that the, you know these costs aren't linear. It's not like the the, the lost GDP and the welfare costs uh, you know uh, are the same month to month. I mean, as every month goes on, and you lose that connectedness with um, not only your employer but your social networks, your sporting clubs. Um, uh, you know, going out, having dinner, you know, going to a restaurant, going to a club or whatever, um, you know, the costs will start to rise. Um, and with, 
with you know with this successful mitigation strategy, uh, the the benefits of of these measures, um, the health benefits um, begin to fall. I mean, unless you unless you assume that the minute we switch off these measures, all hell will break loose and we'll get tens of thousands of deaths. Um, but I'm just not sure that that's the reality, given that we do have, um, you know, strong, um, you know, tracking, tracing, quarantine um, measures in place, increased ICU capacity. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the counterfactual that we should be thinking about. And, and you know, the but this is what the politicians are saying. You know, some politicians are, are still saying, well, we, you know, we can't ease up on the restrictions because... Um, it'll be uh, catastrophic, but, um, and, you know, as we say, Gene, you're not an epidemiologist, I'm not an epidemiologist. Maybe that's, maybe that's what will happen, but, but it, you know, but it, it may be that, that as we, um, have more targeted interventions and, and, um, and lower the economic costs, we're able to manage the health risks at the same time. I mean, let's hope we, we can do that and, and find our way out of this. Absolutely. Joe Brannigan, Director of Tulipwood Economics, thanks so much for coming back onto the program to chat about uh, coronavirus and uh, the issue of uh, where, or the question of where the money is coming from. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Joe. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode. So thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.